and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Bethany Mandel is an editor, writer, and podcaster at Ricochet, an online hub for conservative conversation. She's also a rising social media star and conservative columnist who has garnered quite a bit of attention in recent months for decrying the government overreach of quarantine restrictions and going from being a never-Trumper in 2016 to supporting the president's 2020 re-election. In a recent column in The Forward, she talks about why pollsters trying to project the election's outcome got it so wrong, once again. But don't expect this conversation to be a breakdown of methodology and shifting demographics. Her explanation is much simpler than that, and she will explain. Bethany, welcome to People of the Pod. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry for the puppy noise that you might hear in the background. Okay, it's okay. Now, before we begin, I want to remind our listeners, AJC is a nonpartisan 501c3 not-for-profit entity that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. So anything I say or ask or challenge really is in pursuit of an explanation because I do want our audience to listen. So, Bethany, for those who did not read your column, tell us why pollsters predicted a blue wave that we did not see in last week's election. So I I think that there's going to be a lot of explanations that become clear over the next few months. There might be problems with the way that they call people, how they call people. But I noticed anecdotally, and I was saying it for months beforehand, the most simple explanation for why I thought that it would be extremely close or why the president would garner re-election is just because people were lying, because they didn't feel comfortable telling the truth. And when they would get a call who are you voting for from a stranger? Because you don't actually know who a pollster is and you can't confirm their identity on the phone. Um, When they get a call from a pollster, hi, I'm just curious who you're voting for. They're not going to tell you on the phone who they're voting for. And in my column, I I give a story that I, I thought was really illustrative of my thinking on it coming up prior to the election which was I have, a, I have a girlfriend who lives in a swing state. I think it's North Carolina. And I asked her at the outset of our conversation, who are you voting for? Just sort of in passing. And she said, I'm, just, I'm still undecided. I don't know what to do. And we had a very long conversation. And wh- what we were really talking about was actually she was doing a conference that got canceled by like a social media mob. And people were falsely accused of racism, yada, yada. And the entire six months of work that she did for this conference just went up in smoke and and it was canceled. And so we were talking about that. And I said, that's the kind of stuff that makes people vote for Trump. (laughs) Because he talks about this like social media mobs and the cancel culture and all these things. And I was kind of laughing about how this experience would make her into a Trump voter. Over the course of our conversation, I said, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm voting for Trump this time around. And I never thought I would have done that four years ago. And she was like, wait a second, you are? And I forgot that she doesn't follow me on social media. She doesn't know sort of where I fall. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm voting for Trump. And she was like, oh, I am too. I, I mailed my ballot in weeks ago. <laughs> and she's a friend of mine. And we were having an hour-long conversation. And it was only after I told her that I was voting for President Trump that she admitted to me that she was as well. And so we finished texting. And I looked at my husband and I said, the polls are wrong. If, if this woman who I've known for five years didn't feel comfortable telling me who she was voting for until I told her, there's no way. 
Well, so no, much was made that there were fewer undecided voters in this year's polls. But it also sounds like what you're saying is that there was an even smaller number because those who said they were undecided, or at least some of them, voted for Trump, right? Or they were lying and they said they were voting for Biden instead. I, th- I think that that's definitely a possibility as well. Okay. Now, why would they have said President Biden? What would have been the reasoning there? That's the safe answer in this cancel culture environment that, you know, voting for Vice President Biden was the acceptable and correct answer. But I think that um, I think that a lot of people probably ended up lying. I'm curious if you've gotten any feedback from people who read your column and said, how dare you call us liars? Absolutely not. Every single person understood, even I, as someone who works in the media, until the 11th hour, did not want to say I was voting for President Trump because I knew that every time he did something stupid from then on out, people would throw that column back in my face and say, this is what you signed on for. When in reality, I'm like, I signed a deal with the devil and I knew I was signing a deal with the devil. And I'm not, I'm not rah-rah about him. I'm not MAGA. It's, it's an unfortunate situation and it is what it is. Something that really frustrated me in the wake of Biden's election was people sort of saying like, kumbaya, let's all come together. And I'm like, where were you three years ago? Where were you last year? Why didn't you speak up for the Covington boys? And Pete Buttigieg was one of the people who was saying it. And your staff are literally making lists of Trump administration employees to blacklist them and to strip them of their livelihoods. And I think people across the spectrum have different opinions of people who worked in the administration. I know a million of them. And they understood the deal that the, the devil that they made too. And they were trying to uniformly serve our country and to mediate Trump's Trumpness. And I think they did a great job. And I am appreciative of the work that they did in every single department that they worked in. And they made it possible for us to come out of the last four years fine. We're fine as a country. And Pete Buttigieg's people, his former staff, are making lists of all of these people. And Pete is coming out and saying, you know, let's all let's all come together. I'm like, okay, put your money where your mouth is and publicly denounce what your staff are doing. Where is that being reported? I don't know where it's being reported. It's called the Trump Accountability Project. And if you Google it, I'm sure only conservative media are covering it because that's how it is. They had a website. It's called the Trump Accountability Project. And it's time for people to put their money where their mouth is a little bit on this. And no one is. And Michelle Obama tweeted something the other day that was, you know, half of Americans who voted for him are X, Y, you know, the whole litany of, and this is not, I don't know how you move forward when that, when the former first lady is impugning the motives of half of the Americans that voted for, for Trump. And you're not, you're not voting for racism. You're not voting for, you know, and I think, I think that's a really simplistic way of looking at things. And it's also a really divisive and toxic way. And if Biden wants to actually move forward in a kumbaya fashion, say something about what Michelle Obama tweeted. Now, I want to reiterate what you said at the beginning, Bethany, that this is just your theory. Um, It's based on anecdotal evidence. There are many reasons why the polls might not have panned out this year. But let me ask you this. Not all pollsters work for media. Some work for politicians who are trying to assess what their constituents want. Do you think people understand that not being truthful about their preferences might undermine the whole democratic process? I mean, do you believe that? So I think that's an interesting question because in some part, 
it undermines the thesis of my piece because we saw that the internal polling that was done by campaigns was actually far superior to that of, of the media companies. And I think that people are more apt to trust a pollster that is not in the media because people don't trust the media that readily and that distrust has been well-earned by the media. But the internals that we can gather that the Biden campaign was getting told them to go to Georgia. And it seemed like a crazy idea and they were right to do so. So I, I think that the internal polls that campaigns had were better than the media had. But I don't think it undermines the democratic process because polling is not essential to the democratic process. It just it gives campaigns some idea of where they should be focusing and what their messaging should be. But overall, the democratic process is completely hinged upon votes. And that's really what counts at the end of the day. Well, Bethany, thank you so much for your thoughts. Really intriguing thoughts. I really appreciate that. And I hope our listeners think about it. I hope, you, I hope you've given them food for thought. Thanks. Ron Campius is the Washington Bureau Chief for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, or JTA. We caught up with him this week to break down the results of the congressional election. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you for having me. This is the ninth election that you have covered uh, for JTA. So you have a very keen eye for the Jewish angle in political stories. What were three of the most interesting races for Jews to watch this cycle? Not necessarily races with Jews in them, but the races of the most interest to Jews. Huh, that's a good question. Well, first of all, obviously the presidential race. There's always been a difference between being Republican Jew voting and a Democratic Jew voting and what's values each has. But they've never been in starker relief than here. I mean, this was really the, is Israel important to me? Is my personal safety here important to me? And, and each side would object to how I just cast that. The people who voted for, uh, for Joe Biden would say that their personal security was really important to them. And it ranked high in surveys and in American Jewish committee surveys. But they would say certainly that Israel was important to them and they just didn't think that the way that the Republicans were casting the election being critical to Israel was convincing and vice versa. The other side would say that there were vast differences on Israel between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, but that the personal security issue that Democrats raised wasn't as acute or maybe wasn't even at all acute. But that you, you saw two very different worldviews play out in this election in the Jewish community. And I think, you know, what, what's interesting is that even Joe Biden won. He's the president-elect now. I think Democrats generally and Jewish Democrats certainly were looking for a routing to say that this is behind us, but it's not behind us because it was close. And that there is a Trumpian vision of America out there that Democrats didn't perceive 15 years ago with George W. Bush. I mean, they didn't like George W. Bush. Sometimes they reviled George W. Bush. But if you were a Jewish liberal or a Jewish Democrat, there were things that you could understand you could have in common with George W. Bush. And so they're perceiving another half of America that is very different than they imagined it. It's not an America where I think that they feel comfortable as Jews and they're wondering about how to go forward with that from now on. So that was like, you know, a fascinating race. You know, the other races, the ones that really exercised the people at JTA, especially the ones who are women among us, was Al Gross <laughs> in Alaska, who was kind of unconventional. You think of him unconventional, but every time I do these deep dives into the, you know, the Jews who are running for Congress, 
uh, everybody's unconventional, I think. We should rid ourselves, I think, of the stereotypes we have of Jews. But certainly here was a guy, and his election was called today. He lost, but he was born after an avalanche. He didn't move to Alaska. Al Gross was actually born there after an avalanche. He went out for a fishing trip with a friend once, and they were attacked by a grizzly. So Al Gross killed the grizzly in self-defense. So, you know, you had this <laughs> frontier Jew kind of thing. Um, and the third race wasn't just one race. There were a number of races. It's just a number of Jewish veterans, Jewish national security veterans. It's just a really interesting phenomenon. And, you know, you focus in on Alyssa Slotkin. She ran on bread and butter issues. And she's a very much, what can I do for you? Write my Congress, write my aid here. Tell them what they, how they can help you type of congresswoman. But yet she was called on to be a national security expert because of her experience both in the CIA and afterwards in the National Security Council mm. in both the Bush and Obama administrations. And you saw her step up. And so she was part of the so-called badass caucus, the five women, two of them Jewish, <laughs> her and Elaine Luria, with national security backgrounds who were really resistant to impeaching Donald Trump because they came from conservative districts. But then after the Ukraine thing, after Trump said, uh, you know, could you do me a favor to the president of Ukraine? Can you investigate Joe Biden? It really ticked them off because of their national security backgrounds. And frankly, I think in the case of uh, Alyssa Slotkin and Elaine Luria and Chrissy Houlihan, who isn't Jewish, but whose father is a Holocaust survivor, as Jews, because they felt that their parents or grandparents had come to America for a reason, it was being betrayed in this instance. And that convinced Nancy Pelosi, okay, now those five writing that op-ed together for the Washington Post convinced Nancy Pelosi, now I can go to impeachment. Let me ask you this, Ron, because you kind of raised this dichotomy for us of Jews who care about their safety as Jews here in America voting one way and Jews who care about Israel voting the other way. That first part calls to mind anti-Semitism. To what extent was, was anti-Semitism an issue in, in some of these congressional races? Oh, it kept on cropping up, unfortunately. You know, it's, uh, in Georgia, you've got a runoff now. Unfortunately, it's still probably going to make an impact where John Ossoff, who's Jewish, is running against David Perdue. And so uh, David Perdue got more votes, but he didn't meet the 50% threshold, which is unique in Georgia. In any election, you have to go to a runoff. And so they're going to meet again on January the 5th. And David Perdue, his campaign ran Facebook ads where John Ossoff's nose was digitally altered, made to look bigger than it was. And you had a picture of Chuck Schumer lurking in the back. You've had that in other races involving uh, Jewish candidates. And so, and, you know, it seems like after a while, it's, it's not a mistake. I think especially with David Perdue, it's not just that incident. It's also with him, you know, separately, a completely different kind of type of bigotry, unfortunately, where he uh, mangled Kamala Harris's name, calling her Kamala la 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 la, even though he's worked with her for a number of years. He knows exactly how to pronounce her name and doing that at a at a Trump rally. And so it it comes up and it's and it happened from the other side as well. Somebody uh, associate, not uh, Andy Kim himself, the um, Democrat from New Jersey, but I think the DCCC, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, ran an ad of David Richter, who was challenging him and who came close to unseating him. And Richter's a Republican. Again, it's like it had to do the supposedly ostensibly the substance of the ad had to do with uh, Richter's past business dealings. But you again, you had the picture of him handling money. And, you know, how many pictures mm. are those? I don't know. I, I've never seen them, though. I've never seen a lot of non-Jews in pictures handling a lot of money. It always seems to be the Jewish candidate. And so it's, it, it was a problem. And it's something I think that's going to have to be addressed. 
There's never a bad time to say this, but let me just weigh in now and remind our listeners that AJC is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization that neither endorses nor opposes candidates for elective office. Um, of course, we're concerned about about the issues of anti-Semitism uh, that, that you raise, and, and many of them are, are things that we've spoken out on. We're also concerned, of course, about some of the, the new faces coming into Congress on the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, people are talking about, for example, folks like Cory Bush from Missouri or Jamal Bowman from New York. They're saying that they could be new members of the so-called squad. Bush would be the third member of Congress, I think this is correct, the third member of Congress after Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, who has expressed her support for the BDS movement. Is there any nuance here that we should be seeing in the latest batch of progressives to enter Congress? Yeah, they're definitely, they're they're calling themselves members of the squad. So the squad has gone from four to six. But if you'll remember, there's a member of the squad, Ayanna Presley, who rejects BDS from Boston. And so I think Jamal Bowman is more in that corner. He's rejected BDS outright to say he doesn't like it, but doesn't count out discounting aid to Israel if, if Israel is seen as non-compliant with U.S. foreign policy objectives. And he's certainly more critical of Israel. Same thing with Corey Bush. And you're right, she hasn't, like, as Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, she's not like an outright supporter of BDS. She's expressed support for the goals of the movement, I guess, which is a subtle kind of difference. The Democratic Party... The pro-Israel center of the party is still very much preeminent, I would say. You know, I don't think that's in question. And I keep on reminding people that among the freshmen and among the progressive freshmen elected include people like Richie Torres, who is absolutely pro-Israel. He's been to Israel. Uh, I think a, a part of his identification with Israel comes with just noting the freedom of LGBTQ people in Israel because he identifies as LGBTQ and he's not the sort of person who puts out a pro-Israel statement and then retreats because he doesn't want to mix it up with people who are critical of Israel. He's out there doing battle on Twitter. His people are pushing back against him because he's pro-Israel, but he's just undeniably a progressive. And there are others. However, and the big however is this, I don't think, you know, I think four years ago in 2016, it would have been unimaginable imagining any member of Congress on either side of the aisle being supporting of BDS. And now you have three or 2.7 or however you want to classify Cory Bush. Uh, and that's significant. I think that's significant. And it would have been unimaginable anybody saying, um, you know, seriously proposing that we cut aid to Israel as a means of pressuring it to come be more compliant. And now you've got, you know, Bernie Sanders openly embraced that. Elizabeth Warren did. Pete Buttigieg did. And um, and you had some resistance to that, but it's still a uh, it's out there. We talked a little bit about some of the possible causes for concern. We talked about a few of the bright spots like Richie Torres. But one thing that's undeniable is that Congress is losing a number of longtime pro-Israel stalwarts who are the most likely members of Congress to step up and fill their shoes as Israel's stalwarts on Capitol Hill. Well, first of all, Brad Sherman, who is running for chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, very much pro-Israel stalwart. Gregory Meeks from New York, very much a pro-Israel stalwart. Ted Deutsch, relatively young, younger than me. That means he's relatively young. <laughs> uh, he was the chairman of the Middle East Subcommittee, and he's the chairman of the Ethics Committee. He's a really a rising star. Let's close with a quick overview of something that you alluded to before, which is those Senate runoffs in Georgia. Uh, I think we're going to be hearing a lot about them over the next two months. January 5th, two Senate seats up for grabs, one for a full term, one for just the last two years of a vacated term. If the Democrats win both seats, the Senate is going to be split 50-50. That means that Vice President-elect Kamala Harris is going to have to move into the Capitol building because she's going to be casting a lot of tiebreaker votes. 
But if the Republicans win even one of those, then they'll maintain the majority. So John Ossoff is Jewish. He's a guy who interned with John Lewis. And before John Lewis, the veteran civil rights hero who had a close association with the American Jewish Committee for decades. Before he died, he endorsed John Ossoff, which was quite something in terms of the primary. I think it really gave him a boost. He came to national prominence in 2017 because he ran for a congressional seat that until then was seen as just solidly, solidly Republican because the incumbent, Tom Price, was retiring to become the health secretary, first Trump health secretary. And so they have a jungle primary in these types of things in Georgia. Everybody runs and John Ossoff comes in and he wins nearly 50 percent of the vote. And so wiping out all the Democrats. And so he goes to a runoff against Karen Handel and... uh, And she wins, she narrowly edges him out. But the idea that you could win this district, it just, I went there and he really, really, especially women, women who were very, women, suburban women who were really angry about Trump's election, who I think helped deliver the Congress to Democrats in 2018 and helped deliver the presidency to Biden. Now, that type of women in the, in the Atlanta suburbs, they were hugely angry and he's, he's quite Jewish identified. So he's running against David Perdue. And we talked a little bit, solid pro-Israel reputation, has a good relationship with the Republican Jewish coalition but unfortunately has introduced into this race some themes that are very, I think, unsettling to Jews in the area and to Jews generally, and very much a pro-Trump Republican. So both he and Kelly Leffler signed a letter asking Georgia's Republican Secretary of State to resign, because basically he's saying, you know, the, he's, he's not interfering with the count, which has turned the state blue. The state has gone Democratic, or it's more purple, but for the first time, the, the state is, you know, since 1992, the state has voted for Joe Biden. So very, very Trump-identified in that sense. And then on the other side, you have two candidates who are both having problems with the Jewish community in different ways, very different ways. Raphael Warnock, he is the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a church that Martin Luther King Jr. led. It supposedly has a very good relationship on local issues with the Jewish community. He has expressed a lot of anger at Israel, particularly during the protests on the Gaza border in 2018. And he went on a trip with the uh, National Council of Churches, along with the South African Council of Churches, to Israel, the Palestine. And, you know, it's interesting because this is what happens in the news today. You hone in on one thing. He signed a a joint statement with the 18 people who went. Uh, So um, African-American and South African pastors. And people hone hone in on the the one word where he uses the, the statement, uses the word apartheid. And that's actually less relevant because it talks specifically about the apartheid, you know, the, when they're in the West Bank, they're reminded of the apartheid government of South Africa's actions in Namibia. And it's, so the statement itself does not accuse Israel of apartheid. The statement is very enthusiastic about two states. And I don't think you can be enthusiastic about supporting two states, especially if you're from South Africa, as a lot of them were, and think that Israel is an apartheid state. But what I think is more concerning for pro-Israel readers of that letter is that it doesn't assign any blame at all to the Palestinians for the um, impasse, or it does in a very sort of roundabout, insinuated way whereas most of the blame for the impasse goes to Israel in that thing. So he's come out and he said, I'm absolutely pro-Israel. I am pro the $3.8 billion that Israel gets every year for defense assistance. I would not touch that. And so he's been seeking to reassure people about that and drawing on Democrats in the Atlanta Jewish community to reinforce that. On the other side, you have Kelly Leffler. She's a businesswoman whose husband owns the New York Stock Exchange. The governor of the state, Brian Kemp, named her after Johnny Isaacson reti- retired last year because he was ill. And it's just unfortunate, I think, that you know you have this situation where, on the Republican Party, where people try to out-Trump Trump to win votes. And so 
her opponent in the uh, primary until now, the open primary until now, Doug Collins was doing it one way. He was very close to Trump. He was Trump's most vocal defender during the impeachment, but he's gone now. So you now have Kelly Leffler. And one thing that she did was she embraced uh, the endorsement imposed with Marjorie Green, congresswoman in Northern Georgia, who is, now there are two, there's uh, Lauren Boebert, I think in Colorado, also one who are adherents of the QAnon, I don't know what to call it, uh, conspiracy theory that's just wild about Democrats engaging in pedophilia, et cetera. The problematic part of it is, as as these conspiracies tend to do, it incorporates the anti-Semitic themes. I mean, specifically anti-Semitic themes of Jewish control. Uh, You know, not just invoking George Soros as being all controlling, but going back to the Rothschild family and Marjorie Green herself has has peddled those theories. And so now you have somebody in Congress who's embraced that, and you might have a senator who's embraced her. And so that, I think, is problematic. And both sides are using against each other. So there you go. (laughs) Uh, And the Jews are caught in the middle. (laughs) Well, Ron, you've given us a lot to think about as we watch that race over the next two months and a lot to keep our eyes on over the next two years of this 117th Congress. Thank you so much again for joining us. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Simone Rodin-Benzikin, General Manager of AJC Europe. Simone, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So actually at my Shabbat table, we will be discussing the anniversary of the Paris Bataclan terrorist attacks um, that happened exactly five years ago. And I remember actually exactly five years ago, I was sitting yet at another large Shabbat table with my family when I received a text message from a contact in the intelligence community informing me that there seemed to have been a terrorist attack going on. Uh, And I received maybe a minute later another one from a friend saying, I'm in the 11th arrondissement of Paris. I have heard shootings. Be careful. Stay in or stay away. And so this night of carnage, November 13th, 2015, actually saw 130 people killed, 413 wounded. The Islamist terrorists had attacked the Stade de France stadium, bars and restaurants in the heart of Paris, where young people were having drinks and dining and basically go having fun um, as well as a concert hall. Now, the sheer horror of the attacks, which were then claimed by ISIS, left obviously scars that I don't think have ever healed and probably just been opened once again. Because after a relative pause of terrorist attacks, the beheading of French history teacher Samuel Paty, followed by the murder of three French citizens in a church in Nice, and the terrorist attacks in Vienna, which once again seem to have targeted young people, have been a gruesome reminder that the danger of Islamist terrorism is still very much present in European soil. So this date is both sad, a reminder that the problem of Islamism has not been solved, and also that AJC has been right by telling European leaders for 20 years that Islamist extremism cannot be ignored, that it won't go away, and that it will only grow. But there seems to have been a little bit of movement, and I think that's sort of the hope that we will be discussing also at our Subat table, is that both Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz and French President Emmanuel Macron have made it clear that the problem of Islamist terrorism and that the problem of Islamist ideology will now be tackled. 
uh, too often in the past, Islamism has sort of been downplayed as a, I don't know, political ideology that only sometimes spills in, over into terrorism. And the idea was sort of, you know, if we can identify and preempt the violent extremism, then somehow, you know, we can engage nonviolent Islamism and the terrorism will go away. Uh, so again, European leaders now have made it clear that this won't do it anymore. That means, I hope, that we'll not be falling into the trap of a victimization discourse that Islamists use in order to create the feeling amongst Muslims that they are not part of European society. That means, I hope, that European governments uh, need to be clear that they are targeting Islamists, not Muslims, not Islam. That means, I hope, that banning of foreign finances from countries like Turkey, Iran or Qatar who have used money flows into mosques, non-profit organizations to control and radicalize Muslims and communities in Europe will end. And finally, I hope that means that backing those within European Muslim communities who defend Europeans' democratic model, who are often lonely and isolated, will finally be supported. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I have to say, I'm certain that what frightens those Islamist terrorists is not that a French or an Austrian overreaction might actually stigmatize ordinary Muslims. I actually believe that's exactly the opposite that they are aiming for. But what they really fear is that Europeans, including a vast majority of European Muslims, actually unite in the fight against this totalitarian ideology. The solution is, and I think Emmanuel Macron was right, as he recently said in a speech, for fear to change sides. This really needs to happen. Fear needs to change sides. Because really, I really don't want to sit at yet another Shabbat table five years from now and say that not much has changed. Simone, thank you so much for reminding us about that important and sad anniversary. I'm embarrassed to say I had not remembered there was such a massive loss of life that night, which is something that should never be forgotten. So thank you. At our Shabbat table, my family also will be discussing an anniversary and holiday that serve as calls to action. On Veterans Day, my son taped a sign to our front door inviting everyone to celebrate our nation's soldiers via Zoom. I'm not kidding. He suggested everyone jump on Zoom to celebrate because he knew crowds would be too dangerous. For school, he wrote a letter to veterans, thanking them for their service. But quite honestly, in the chaos that rules our weeks, we did not discuss his grandfathers, both of whom served in the military. My father served in the U.S. Air Force. My husband's father served in the Army Reserve. Both men served to protect our democracy, which we saw in full swing last week. Now, I've always labored as a journalist under the premise that I am doing my part to protect democracy. Let the people know the facts and the country will be safe. That quote by Abraham Lincoln has always been one of my favorites. One of the reasons I chose to work at AJC is that in addition to its mission of safeguarding the welfare and security of Jews, AJC also includes, as part of its mission, the work it takes to strengthen the basic principles of democracy. They go hand in hand. When trusted systems are falling apart, transparency is lacking, and democracy is in trouble, so are the Jewish people. When anti-Semitism begins to emerge in many of the ways it has in recent years, it's a sign that society is sick. Its foundations and values are flagging. Democracy is buckling under the strain, and we must fight to fortify it. So, at our Shabbat table, we will talk about how fitting it is that AJC's anniversary falls on Veterans Day. That's right, on November 11, 1906, 13 years before Woodrow Wilson declared Armistice Day, a group of American Jews concerned about the pogroms against Jews in Russia convened in a New York City hotel to establish the American Jewish Committee. Its mission? 
to prevent infringement of the civil and religious rights of Jews, and to alleviate the consequences of persecution. The pair of celebrations serves as a reminder to our children that democracy is fragile and our family and nation have a legacy of serving to protect it in a variety of ways. A big thank you to all of the veterans out there who have put yourself in harm's way to protect our nation and our democracy. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Sefi, what's on your mind? Two weeks ago, I spoke about how Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, had announced that he had been diagnosed with cancer. On Saturday, the world learned that he had passed away. So ends the life of an absolute giant of 21st century Judaism, taken from us too soon at age 72. Jonathan Sachs was a rabbi, a husband, a father, a baron, a politician, albeit a nonpartisan one, as all chief rabbis are to some extent. Most of all, though, he was a teacher. Generations of rabbis in the UK and around the world considered him their role model. Generations of young Jews learned his wisdom, whether from books, lectures, or YouTube videos. And generations of non-Jewish Britons enjoyed his teachings on the BBC and other British media. One of Rabbi Sachs's predecessors as chief rabbi, Rabbi Joseph Hertz, published one of the most widely used chumashim, or Bibles, of the 20th century. Indeed, the Hertz chumash is still in use today in some synagogues around the world. Rabbi Sachs made his own indelible contribution to Jewish prayer, partnering with the renowned Koran Publishing House to create prayer books featuring his wise commentary. The Koran Sachs Sidur for weekdays and Shabbat and the Machzor for holidays has become an absolute staple of Orthodox synagogues around the English-speaking world, inspiring countless numbers of Jews in their communications with God. Rabbi Sachs cultivated students around the world, including among the highest echelons of British society. I'll close with a short excerpt from the moving eulogy that His Royal Highness Prince Charles wrote for his friend. Quote, Speaking of the passing of his own revered teacher, Rav Nachum Rabinovich, earlier this year, Rabbi Sachs said, Teachers give us more than knowledge. They give us life. Having a great teacher is as close as we get to heaven. Those words could rightly be said of Rabbi Sachs. May his light continue to shine and his memory live on as a blessing. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good for his mercy endureth forever, end quote. May Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs's teaching be an enduring gift for us all, and may his memory be a blessing. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.